Hello and welcome to Movies Last Night's The Directors series, where we cover four movies each from 12 different directors. Spanning multiple decades, languages, genres and themes, please join us as we revisit classics and beloved movies alongside lesser known and equally interesting films from who we consider to be some of the most influential and creative voices of cinema, past and present. Now, cue the music. Anderson series, we will be covering Boogie Nights from 1997. It is an American period comedy drama written, directed, and co-produced by Paul Thomas Anderson. The film stars Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Heather Graham. An expansion of his rockumentary short film The Dirk Dickler Story, the film follows a young nightclub dishwasher who becomes an overnight adult film star sensation, whilst also chronicling the rise and fall of the pornographic film industry in America. The film has a runtime of 155 minutes and was distributed by New Line Cinema. It had a domestic opening of $50,168 and went on to take $43.1 million worldwide. The movie has a critic score of 94% and an audience score of 89%, marking it certified fresh. Although it should be said here at Movies Last Night, we do not use metrics like this to qualify a movie as a success any more than we do the movie's box office performance. As a friendly reminder, the following show contains spoilers throughout, so you have been warned. Eric. Scott. <laughs> have you ever considered entering into the adult film industry? <laughs> it's never it had been an option. Never? I never had the opportunity that, that I knew of. So <sighs> nobody talent scouted you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Never. No casting couches. No looking for models or whatever, whatever the case is. I did live close to Southern California, so I mean, I just had to drive a few hours and I could have dipped my foot in maybe, <laughs> I, I have the feeling you have to probably know someone who knows someone in that uh, industry and uh, I would imagine there's a darkness there. <laughs> there's a darkness there. Yeah, there is. There's a darkness there. I think that's what's really fucking weird about it because I, I, the whole time I was re-watching Boogie Nights, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like... Is the industry safer? Arguably, yes. Now, safer, yes. More mainstream, arguably, yes. More mainstream. Is it is just as damaging? Yes, probably. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I would imagine uh, more, unfortunately, more younger adults, we'll say younger adults, are obviously ex exposed to it. And I think they more than likely participate or have the access to participate in their own ways and display that online in easier access than say old old guys like us. <laughs> when I was younger, a very good friend, he's not going to listen to this podcast. I'm not going to say his name, but um <laughs> very good friend of mine was propositioned by this couple, mm. this older couple to make porn with them. And he would basically go in and have sex with this guy's, I think it was his wife at the time. The, mm -hmm. the details are a little hazy to me, but he, he did it. Yeah. 
And I don't know how often he did it or if he just did it once. Again, it gets a little hazy, but that's the closest my, that's the closest I've came to that industry by proxy of somebody oh, doing okay. something that probably wasn't even, it was probably just for this guy's personal collection. It probably wasn't even like he was releasing them, I guess. He might not have been releasing them. That's about as close, I guess, as I've came. Your buddies it turned out to be a serial killer? Is that what it was? <laughs> no, he was actually really chill. I think he was actually really cool about it. I think so. I think he said it was fun. <laughs> I think how it was. How I dare know. he? I don't know, but I think too, <laughs> though, like, I think you and I, Eric, were probably a little bit more prudish about it based around our, on our age. Because like, I, so I don't know about you, and like, we can, we can share, it's a safe space, but like, so when I was a kid, Oh, like obviously you get introduced to pornography in different ways when you're growing up, you mm -hmm. know? And like, yeah. we can talk about porn because I think it's like, it, it's something everybody participates in. Everybody's watched, you know? It's, it's uh, ubiquitous. Yeah, it is. And I think to pretend <laughs> that it doesn't exist is to, to make it, to make, give it more um, power than it really needs because it's really quite a, it's quite a silly thing really when you think about it. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, so like growing up, my introduction to it was like page three girls, what I would say is like where you dip your toe in as a kid. So like in England and in, in like the news of the world or the sun newspaper, the, on the third page, there would always be a topless lady and it was the page three girl. Oh, okay. I thought it was called page six or something. Yeah. It's page three. So that's what they call it. So it'd be page three mom, oh, and it would just be, okay. so, which is super random when you think about it, because that's a newspaper that's just read Everybody buys that newspaper and you go to the third page and it's always just a big <laughs> pair of boobs. And like, so I grew up with that. And then obviously I think being kind of European too, and, and I, I go on vacation to Ibiza and stuff when I was a kid, I was always in Spain. So I was around that like topless beaches. And in, when you go to like places like that, there was a lot of like dirty magazines everywhere and stuff growing up. I was going to say, I imagine there's a, there's a little bit of a, a laxed viewpoint when it comes to that, maybe. I think in Europe, probably more so. Yeah. And then really, I think like my first introduction to pornographic like movies that are depicted in here was funnily enough movies from this era, because the first time I saw porn, it was probably like a John Hughes, um, John Holmes, um, not John Hughes. John it was Holmes. probably like a John, John Holmes movie. John. And it was very <laughs> John, <laughs> John Hughes, the porn years. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, or like Marilyn <laughs> Chambers, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was very like, um, the, the softcore or, or yeah. like 70s Swedish. It was a lot of European stuff, like Swedish erotica, 70s yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, very tame by today's standards, I should imagine, the pornography that I first saw. Like, and it's really funny because I remember it being like super weird. I remember um, when I went to school too, this is another interesting thing that happened is I remember I got this floppy disk from somebody and they were like, oh, this is a porn. And I was like, what are you talking about? Put the floppy disk in uh, my Commodore Amiga or my Commodore 64, one of the two. I think it was Commodore Amiga at the time. It was just, it was like a loop, like a GIF loop of like uh, somebody's penis entering a vagina. And it was just on a loop. And it was like, and it, it must have took up the entire floppy disk. It was like one meg and it like maxed it out. Terrible resolution. And everybody at school was sharing it and we all just passed it around. Everybody's like, oh, have you seen it? It was so, it's so hilarious that that's how old we are that we thought that was like. Uh... I was like, oh my God, I can't believe what I've just seen. You know what I mean? And then I used to hang out with these kids. We used to play football. One of these kids I used to hang out with, his uncle lived like two doors down from him. And his uncle was, um, lived by himself and he was older. So he was like just the right kind of person to probably watch pornography. You know what I mean? So, um, sometimes he would go out and he'd be at work and we'd be playing football. And when we'd see him leave, 
we climb around the back of his house over the fence and then we get in through his house through the window because he used to leave the top window open in his kitchen. So we'd slide through the top window to get into his house <laughs> and we'd go through his collection of movies. It would take one, oh, take it back, watch, it, watch him and then return him. And he never ever noticed what was going on. Um, so it's just funny. So like and the reason I'm bringing it up is because what's interesting and, and it also ties into what I was talking about with um, the floppy disk is the correlation between pornography and technology. And yeah. uh, as yeah. technology became more widely available and certain things went from being, you would see uh, a stag movie, as they called them, in, in, a, in, a, in a porno movie theater in the 70s, early 70s, going all the way back to like the beginning of like film when they were like, you know what I mean? The first time you saw that guy riding oh, yeah, on the horse, yeah. there was probably yeah. a nudie mm. picture at the same time. You know what I mean? They were doing that shit. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And then- as it became in, then it left the theaters and it went in people's homes. And then eventually it worked its way onto people's telephones. And then this, uh, like the, the, I think of a, what's an interesting correlation in the movie directly talks about this is the correlation between the closer and the more convenient and easy access we have to it, the worse or more dangerous or more salacious the product comes. So basically, the easier it was for us to access, there was less less of a barrier, in which case it became more about amateur, no frills, like more aggressive, harsher, a lot of things. Yeah, there was no story or anything like that. It was just yeah, the act. It was just exactly. all about the act. Yeah, yeah. And I just think there's an in, that's an interesting correlation. And I think he, he talks about it in the movie too. But I'm, I'm kind of curious is... I wonder if there's, and, I, and maybe you might got this read from the movie, but I feel like there's also, he's talking about Hollywood too through this. And I think he's also perhaps talking about movies too through this. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's more to be said than just, I, I feel like he's using, he's playing with a lot of different themes, I think, throughout the movie. And he's using, a lot of it seems like metaphorical to an extent. I think it is one, he he's tending to kind of base it not necessarily in his childhood or anything like that, but those places where he films, where he tells his stories are places in life that he knows. Cause he was a Southern California kid, I believe. So there's that and the, like all the areas and, and probably everything that's in the movie are places that he's walked by and stuff like that. But um, as far as technology, co-opting the industry co-opting technology there there's they're always at the forefront of whatever the latest technology is whatever it is it goes hand in hand yeah whatever is coming up in the future pornography is going to be at the forefront of whatever that technology is which is is interesting to me just in the sense that that can kind of give you an idea or to what the culture is has their has their minds on so 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 we're not i think we we think of ourselves more evolved as a culture but when you kind of get down to like you know the brass tacks of the whole thing the industry that's leading our technology is that way because that's what we consume you know that that's whether we want to admit it or not that that's kind of the avenue of consumption not necessarily like hardcore porn or anything like that but it's just like salation and the forbidden or the taboo i guess you would you would say 
voyeuristic aspect of human beings. Voyeuristic. There you yeah. go. That that's the word I was looking. Yeah, for. and also ultimately, you can dress us up as much as you like, but ultimately, we're just rabbits running in a field. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we we yeah. we still like that superhuman. Uh, animalistic urge to yeah. fuck is just basically you know yeah. what runs through yeah. our veins regardless of where we are. You know what I what I was thinking when you when you brought up metaphor it, that's very interesting because I I was there was one word that was kind of popping up in my head the entire time while I was watching this and it was possession. You know, to me as I'm watching this movie, I watched it a handful of times and I've never thought this before. To me, it's all about all these different characters trying to possess something in another character. When Jack is looking at Dirk, Eddie Adams or Dirk, he's looking at him as a like a value object and he wants to possess whatever that value object is. When uh, Amber Waves is looking at Dirk, she wants to possess him as a child, you know, when Scotty is looking at Dirk, he wants to possess him as a lover. So it's like in all these characters, there's this element of of wanting to possess an aspect of different characters. And I found that super fascinating while I was watching this. That's a really interesting take because you, you could flip that though. And you can also, and I want to get into it as we keep talking about the movie, but the, the possession. So uh, to possess, to exploit and possess, or also in a way, I guess, you can flip it and beat it that it's like people they are looking for what they feel they're missing in other people. Yeah. So yeah. it it could also be like you're filling a hole for me rather than it being like a, a possession thing. It could also be like oh like but the, I mean the obvious one to one is Julianne Moore and uh, Mark Wahlberg's character Dirk and I forget Julianne Moore's. We'll get into it. But she like that's the most one to one where she is obviously unable to see her son and then he becomes like a surrogate son. Well, and it, surrogate, yeah. Which she sleeps with. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, nothing's perfect. You know what I mean? But um, <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Because I remember, so when we talked about Hard Eight, we talked about why you chose PTA. And we talked about why you chose these four movies in a row that you did. Obviously, bypassing Punch Drunk. But we were talking about, we're going to talk about Hard Eight. We're going to go into this, Boogie Nights, then Magnolia, then into There Will Be Blood. So like I said, bypa- bypassing Punch Drunk. And you brought it up to me and you said, well, it's a, it's a bit about um, families. It's a little bit about um, surrogate fathers, surrogacy, finding a family in different forms and what family can look at like in different forms, which I think is a really good take. Yeah, it is. And it's in all of these movies. It's in these four in particular. I, I haven't seen Magnolia in so long, so I'm excited to see that and talk about it. But I think this movie so far, this movie is like filling, checking all the boxes that you mentioned thematically yeah i mean for for this one he to me he made this movie like he was never going to make another movie again that's what it feels like you know yeah yeah because of his experience and, and everything is kind of well documented and it, it, and if you've listened to other things on like youtube or anything about movies or or movie commentary or anything like that you you know that he had a difficult time controlling Hard eight or aspects of hard eight that he wanted to control that that the studio wanted to change, which they're going to do with someone who I guess would be considered untested. And I he went into this with like strong rules about what he wanted to accomplish. And I think for the most part he got it, but I didn't think I don't think that he got everything that he wanted. I think he wanted a a three plus hour cut 
and NC-17 rating. Yeah, and he wanted NC-17, exactly. I think he compromised on both of those things in the end. But it really doesn't matter because what he put on the screen was just, for its time, 97, like nothing else. Like nothing else that had been out that year. And I, I watched something recently about the uh, like best of pictures of 97, and it got snubbed for that, which is ridiculous. But it's like everything in that list, you're like, I, I guess, but I mean, there's some stuff you could probably take out and this would have easily fit right into it. There's a, there's a lot of, um, well, he swung for the fences, but he also, he also gave you his homage picture, everything from Scorsese to De Palma to Tarantino. Altman. Altman. Yeah. Like all the masters, you know, are in there because it's, I'm sure he thought to himself, I might not get to do this again. Oh yeah, I'm shit. I, and, I I don't know. I don't know. And I appreciate the fact that he did come out with his second movie. He was like, okay, I'm gonna be fucking stick to my guns. The three hour rating, three hour runtime, and Ben C17. I'm gonna be honest. I'm pleased he didn't get either of them because this movie doesn't yeah. need to be three hours long. If anything, on rewatch, I think it's a tad too long. This movie, only briefly, but also I think it doesn't need to be NC17 because I feel like the movie's about the industry. It's not about the sex. Yeah. You know, I feel like it doesn't really delve into, it shows like the machinations of like, like obviously, you know, him trying to get hard or this is how we should have seen. And are you ready to go? And like all of the little, like inside baseball on shooting pornography, at least back in the day, how they used to do it. And I feel it's about that as opposed to like tits and ass. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I think. I'm trying to think of NC-17 movies that I have seen that, it's mainly it mainly had to do with like violence isn't it sexual like eh, like like sexual situations that maybe the only like one about violence really was uh um, natural born killers man by dog uh oh yeah man, man by dog yeah was that nc7 i i'm not i'm not sure i want to say a movie like that maybe was nc17 but there 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 was probably only like i don't know three three or four that i've probably seen i, I and i couldn't really name them maybe maybe henry and june might have been uh, NC-17. Uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? I just thought that was our rating. I'm I'm not sure. I've got a list of like popular NC-17 films. A Serbian film? Terrible. I'm not going to watch that. Of course, that would be NC-17. Yeah. The Dreamers. Blue is the Warmest Color. Kids. So or around this period of time, so Kids, oh. um, 1995 was NC-17. And I think Kids is a masterpiece, personally. Showgirls, 1995, NC-17. Oh, Shame? The um, Fastbender, oh. um, Steve McQueen movies, yeah. NC-17. I didn't realize that. I didn't know that, no. Is that because there's penis in it? Well, I I don't know. I've never seen it. So, I mean, we're going we're, we're gonna to well, watch it eventually. Yeah. Natural Born Killers, 94. That was NC-17. Was it really? Crash, 96, NC-17. I'm just looking at ones from around this period of time. There's a few from beforehand, such as uh, Last Tango in Paris, obviously. It's crazy that that the rating really just doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't really. Happiness, the um, Todd Solondz movie mm-hmm. of 1998, yeah. uh, NC-17. But I don't think that was because of violence or sexuality. It was just because it was disturbing. Exactly. Well, it had to do, it, it was like inappropriate as far as- it's Pedophilia in it, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like- mentioned and like but you don't see anything obviously no. you, you can't show that sort of that stuff um but it's just implied there's some implications there but 
Yeah, it's interesting. We could do a whole episode just about NC-17 movies. It's kind of fascinating. I'm scrolling through them. You, um, you're right. Henry and June was NC-17. Henry and June, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so I'm I'm pleased it didn't go down that route. I don't think it needs to be that. And I think like no. it might take, and I think if we was to push for it to be salacious, it would take away from the impact of the movie. Because I feel like part of the reason this movie is successful is its blending of tone between comedy and drama. Yeah, I was going to say, it's the funniest sad movie I've ever watched. That's it. It's it, it's the pathos <laughs> of it, you know? That like sad yeah, yeah. humor. Yeah, for sure. So it, look at it, 1997 when the movie came out. If you look at the box office, just like you mentioned, we've got um, the biggest grossing movie of the year was Men in Black. Then it was Lost World, the Jurassic Park sequel. But we're looking at it in a yeah, that's very, very sanitized movie-wise in the box office. Wasn't Titanic out that year? Yes, it, but that year it only came in at number seven. Because it would have oh. rolled through, because it probably came. Oh, it I came out you. at December nineteenth. It came out on December nineteenth, and it's the seventh highest grossing movie of that year. That's how much money Titanic was taken back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> but like, yeah, if you look at like in terms of like very sanitized, almost like Face Off, um, Batman and Robin, George of the Jungle, Connor, Hercules, Contact, Jerry Maguire, Flubber, Conspiracy Theory, Scream Two, Scream, Tomorrow Never Dies. I know what you did last summer. Everything I'm getting in that from that top 20 now obviously i don't think boogie nights was going to compete on a box office level like these movies but if you think about like what you're getting in hollywood in the mainstream what's pretty much the same today is there's a lot of sexless a lot of fantasy a lot of everything's very light for a top 20 there's nothing with any kind of weight to it at all in that top 20 at all the only movie i think that has any weight to it would be titanic and that's just because it's based on a true story yeah even scrolling through the top 50 movies, like you don't even start getting into anything with any grit till you start getting down to like the 70s, which is like Gross Point Blank, um, Event Horizon. Boogie Nights comes in at 78. <laughs> it was beaten by Event Horizon that year. <laughs> I kind of remember liking Event Horizon, but I, I don't know if it would stand up if I watched it again. I'm not sure. It doesn't. I don't think so. I think at the time it's pretty good. I think it's got a good Sam Neill performance. And it I, I like that movie because it's very vicious for its time. It's very like, um yeah. it's pretty dark. Um, But really, in terms of it being like a period piece, essentially, Boogie Nights 2, which it is, it's a period piece. It's filmed 97 and, and set like 1977, 78, 79 into like the early 80s. So very much a period piece. Of the top 100 movies that came out that year, the only movie that gets anywhere close to it is The People vs. Larry Flint, which is another period piece, obviously. Mm -hmm. We've got Jackie Brown, which, no, it's not because Jackie Brown's set contemporary, isn't it? It just feels like a 70s movie, but it's set in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. But really speaking, for it being a period piece, there's not a lot of period movies came out that year. So that's another thing I think that, that really sets this movie apart is its setting and how accurate it is to its setting. I mean, other than Amistad, which is like historical, everything else is pretty much set contemporary in the top 50. Yeah, I was going to say, no one's making movies about the 70s in the 90s. Exactly. I don't think that becomes, that doesn't become kind of um, popular or sought after until you actually you get to around our time now within this last decade or so the hold where everybody is yeah. re is rediscovering yeah really rediscovering 70s cinema at least within the last 10 years or so it seems like people are rediscovering those what was so great about 70s cinema oh yeah 100%. and to kind of do it at that time in the 90s when everybody's wanting to be about 
2000, you know, Y2K and like the 2000s and what's coming in the future sort of thing. No one is really interested in making that sort of uh, period piece, I think, or no one was really talking about it. Even even Pulp Fiction was, even though it had a bit of that grittiness it's to it. It's contemporary. It's contemporary of its time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's what I was thinking the whole time I'm watching it. I'm like, I always really pit PTA against Tarantino in a way. I don't pit them as like competitors, but I think they are, um, in a way they are. If if you could imagine for that period of time, it's like you've got like for American independent filmmakers, you like you're going up against Tarantino. It's like the Beatles and the Stones. You know what I mean? It's kind of like- Yeah, there you go. They, yeah. They're each other's contemporaries. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, what's interesting yeah. about Tarantino at that point is his movies aren't historical or on period pieces. But they play like they, I mean, they play essentially like 70s movies, but they, they shot like 70s movies too. But what's interesting is uh, PTA just went straight up and made a 70s movie in in the 70s. I was going to say in in seven, in this, in that style. In that too. style. Yeah. 100%. I mean, as far as, as far as his influences, because even, even from that, that first shot, it's just like, oh, there's Scorsese right there. The beginning of the movie is so Scorsese. It's wild. There's the Goodfellas walk right there you know sort of thing and then by the time you get later into the movie where they're doing the circle around the table you're like oh there's you know that that's like every scorsese movie and that's every tarantino movie that's kind of a play on that oh and that it's that same thing in like swingers and reservoir dogs it's just that it's that iconic classic shot of the going around the table sort of I mean, you you see him and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're doing. Yeah, it's almost very comforting to me when I see stuff like that. Yeah. The look of this movie is very comforting to me. It's it's very much like in my head, rightly or wrongly, the movies like look that look like this are what I think of cinema. Mm. You know, I, it's that's what cinema looked like to me. Is that like, I don't know if it's anamorphic, that big widescreen, beautiful, heavy, not overly saturated, the co- color accurate, very warm. Um, in in obviously uh, later on in through the 90s into the 2000s is where everything started to get that like color washed kind of like grayish kind of look that everything had going through it like you know with the matrix and all of those movies and to me this is what i think of when i think of cinema this is my preferred aesthetic for cinema is what this movie looks like heartache too you know pulp fiction has that too very timeless in my opinion so speaking about the movie, did you know, and I mean, anybody can find this out because I just found it out from Wikipedia, but <laughs> it's based on a mockumentary that he made at high school, which I think is kind of He, he made it when he was like 17 or something like that. And um, the guy who plays the Colonel Wrigley or Rigby or something like that, uh, who's in Boogie Nights, was actually in it. And the guy who uh, Buck was trying to sell the stereo to in the beginning that was the original Dirk Diggler I believe oh it was that's fun yeah uh Robert Ridgely who plays the colonel in this movie Robert Ridgely yeah okay oh that's interesting uh so I guess that um again this is from just a a search anybody could do so I'm, this isn't personal knowledge that I have I was just like yeah. reading <laughs> up before the movie but it's fascinating I think it's worth discussing is he originally wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play the role DiCaprio liked it but turned it down because he was doing Titanic, but he really wished he hadn't done it. Apparently later he said he wished he'd done both. So he, it was DiCaprio, DiCaprio who recommended Wahlberg because he was part of his pussy patrol or whatever they called his gang of friends that he's hung out. <laughs> you know, it was like DiCaprio and yeah. Toby Maguire and all those assholes hung out together. Oh yeah. So he recommended him. And what's interesting is I think the casting's the most interesting when it comes to Burt Reynolds because he 
offered it to Bill Murray, Harvey Keitel, Warren Beatty, who I think would have been perfect in that role, and Albert Brooks uh, and Cindy Pollock. But it's funny because I could see Albert Brooks in the Burt Reynolds role, and I could definitely see Warren Beatty in the role. Warren Beatty, 100%. Bill Murray, yeah. not too much. I think my problem with Bill no. Murray is Bill Murray's Bill Murray. So like, I can't see... Yeah, yeah. You would look. You would look at him and be like, "Oh, okay." There's. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds kills it in this role. I mean, oh, he, murders he, it. he like he yeah murders it. Does an incredible job with it. I mean, that role is his. But I I could totally. I didn't know that about Warren Beatty. I think that that would have been kind of he would have made interesting choices with John C. Riley. I, yeah, I mean the the cast is crazy in it. I mean it's oh, the like, cast it's is incredible. Who? And a lot of people who just went on and have like killer careers. Philip Seymour Hoffman just blossomed post this role, but like a lot of just good character actors too, like Louise Guzman, who's incredible in everything he's in. Alfred Molina has a really good cameo, uh, well, almost like a cameo <laughs> performance yeah. in this, and he's incredible in this movie. You've got so many great people right the way down to. We'll, and we'll we'll talk we'll talk about Wahlberg because I think there's too many people in this cast to do what we did with Hard Eight, which is where we broke down like the four main cast members of Hard Eight because there's only four characters, so it's easy to do. This is an ensemble movie, so we can't really do that. We'd be here all fucking day if we started to break down everybody's career that was in the movie. <laughs> but I do want to talk about Mark Wahlberg, and I do want to talk about Burt Reynolds. And I guess we'll start with Burt Reynolds since we were talking about him just there. His full name is Burton Leon Reynolds Jr., which is a hell of a name. Born February 11th, 1936, and he died in 2018. He had a good run. This is what I know about Burt Reynolds as an Englishman, okay? I only know very <laughs> little information about Burt Reynolds. I know him from, the thing I know him from the most is Deliverance. That is my Burt Reynolds movie. Now that is kind of traumatizing on so many different levels. <laughs> now I know he's in Smokey and the Bandit. I didn't grow up with Smokey and the Bandit when I was a kid. I grew up watching Cannonball Run was the, my the closest thing I had to Smoking the Bandit. And that's just because uh, my grandfather really liked uh, Dean Martin and Dean Martin's in Cannonball Run. That's how I, and I, I like Jackie yeah. Chan. He's in it. So it was a bunch of people. I was going to say Jackie yeah. Chan's in there too. Yeah. Dom DeLuise. I never grew up with um, Smokey and the Bandit. Did you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I went to, I'm sure I saw it when, when I don't know when that came out, but I was going to drive in theaters when I was a very little kid. So I might have seen it at a drive-in theater, possibly. I'm not 100% sure on that. That was like back in the Stone Age. <laughs> but uh, my favorite, I would say whenever I think of Burt Reynolds, my one of my favorite Burt Reynolds movies is Hooper. I haven't seen that. I don't no, know if you've seen no. that. 1978? Yeah, he plays a stuntman. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, but it's, it's a lot of the same people who um, were kind of in that Smokey and the Bandit era. Jan Michael Vincent, I believe, was in there too before he got before he got hurt. But that's a great movie. It's all it's it's like you know how Tarantino is kind of his his love story almost in Once Upon a Time to the stuntmen that of that era. This is basically those stuntmen of that era. Yeah, I actually now I'm kind of on a kick. I kind of want to watch that. But it's funny too because, like I said, so basically I know him from Deliverance and I know him from Cannibal Run, and then. I don't know that I've seen Deliverance all the way through or the entire thing. I, I don't believe so. Yeah. Well, my dad, God, my dad, my dad made me watch that. He didn't make me watch it. He didn't put a gun in my head, but there was <laughs> a few movies when I was growing up that my dad was like, okay, son, these are like, you got to watch these movies. One was Deliverance. The other was The Warriors. And then the other one was Alien. So that was like the three <laughs> movies my dad was like, 
these these will put hair on your chest. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a cool dad right there. <laughs> but Deliverance is such a fucked up movie. And but what's cool about him, and I think why he's good casting in this, is because he was such a sex symbol when he was younger, and because he has that. He's very famous for that mustache and that like he's he's very famous for that masculine. Famously, and I believe this is Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds was a he posed. Didn't he have a a nude shoot for Playgirl? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it was Playgirl. Yeah. Fun fact about that for the listener and for you, Eric, in my old, my last my last job, just before I moved here, there was a <laughs> service entrance into the building and it was in a public stairwell. So in the wintertime, because we worked downtown in Nashville, in the wintertime, a lot of the homeless people would live in the stairwell. So when you would go in the morning to go to work, you'd have to like basically climb over homeless people. Unfortunately, it's, you know, terrible state of affairs, but they all lived in the stairwell because it was the only place that was warm. And one day, some guy cut out a picture, I don't know where he got it from, of that Burt Reynolds naked, and it was <laughs> stuck to the wall in the stairwell, and then people would leave cigarette boxes there, and people would, it was like the communal smoking area for God knows who, <laughs> with just a picture of Burt Reynolds' dick. <laughs> <laughs> where on earth did he get that? That's I know. Crazy. Isn't that funny? It's so random. But yeah, and I think that's why he's good casting in this, because- he is playing somebody who is playing this mentor role, this older, older gentleman, but he looks like he's had a past because it, you know, it's Burt Reynolds too. So like you're, yeah. you're tying in some of the, I think of the mythos of Burt Reynolds into Jack Horner, you know what I mean? So like some of his movie star magic is coming through in like that character. And I think that's why it worked, which is why I think Warren Beatty would have been a good choice too, because they are both of that era, sex symbols of that era. It's clever casting. I think it's really clever casting um, to have him. Yeah, I mean, he he really kind of portrays it as being a man of the world. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I should say a predator of the world. Yeah. And <laughs> because, because let's not sugarcoat it. He is a predator. 100%, but he's charming. And that's what makes yeah, him interesting yeah. because there's almost like a kindness to him. And I think that's because he's like, he's good at getting people's guards down and he's good at kind of convinced do you people. think he really loves these characters though do you think he yes, really I think he loves does. i think he you does. think so we'll get into it as we talk but i'm i think there's a genuine affection that he has for these people like a genuine affection and i think it's more than just him seeing dollar signs i think he does see dollar signs when he sees um dick diggler take his pants off yeah but i think <laughs> i think there is a there's a care that he has for that it's a lot of the stuff he's doing is just morally wrong i I suppose or like morally questionable considering the ages of these kids too who he's plucking from essentially from high school but i was gonna say yeah how how old's roller girl well she's finishing high school because she doesn't finish at first and she goes back to high school later on doesn't she finish her uh diploma we're thinking she's 17 maybe 18 at a push seven and and uh dirk diggler eddie is 17 i think give it take yeah they meet up yeah because that becomes interesting later on with what ultimately ends up happening to the colonel and then his disgust at what's happening to the colonel is kind of interesting because he's not far off himself really from what he's what he's doing not what he's indulging in personally but what he's promoting he's pushing i mean they're like high school kids you know when i first watched that i didn't understand what i mean i understood why he got arrested but when he started talking about it i didn't i could i couldn't maybe it is my brain i couldn't put two and two why he was what he was talking about at the end when he was like tell me you're still my friend and and then 
Jack is kind of broken down. Like, why did you do? He couldn't believe what he was telling him. And in my head, I was like, well, I don't understand what did he do sort of thing. Or what is he talking about? And I didn't realize that he was talking about. um, Pedophilia. He was talking about like child pornography. Like. Essentially. But when he's saying like, like, yeah, when he was saying they're small, was he talking about like little, little kids? Yes. Or was he talking about like teenagers? No. So basically he got caught. Well, the reason he got in trouble is because throughout the movie, you see him with a young starlet each time. And in the beginning of the movie, we see that young starlet who overdoses on the cocaine and he's like, okay, we'll get out of the hospital. So I guess that the same thing happened. She uh, had a young uh, woman back with him. She was 15. And he thought she looked older. She overdoses on mm. coke. But what happens is when they come there, he didn't get in trouble for that because he didn't do anything. I don't think he has sex with these women. I think it's more like they're like pets almost in a way. So he wasn't having sex with her. So he didn't get charged for that. But they found in his place, he had possession of, I'm guessing, child pornography. And I think that's where his kink is. Uh, so him saying to Jack, he's like, hey, tell me you're still my friend. Tell me you're my friend. I think obviously Jack's kind of disgusted in general, but I feel like there's an element of him withdrawing from that because it also... He does it. It, it puts the mirror on him. I think it does. And, and I think it's exactly it, yeah. why, because I think whilst he's not doing the same thing, I think he becomes aware of the fact that he needs to distance himself from that because that's a conversation he doesn't want to have with himself. Like, is what I'm doing like morally bankrupt? to an extent but we're getting sidetracked but yeah i think i think that's what's going on with him but i think burt reynolds interestingly enough i think he was nominated for his performance in this he was yeah and famously at least according to wikipedia he was he didn't like the movie he didn't like top pta they have a notoriously frosty relationship i think later on record he was saying that he wish he had nothing to do with it but then when he was questioned and he was pushed he was like oh yeah i appreciate what i did it's an interesting film because he's such a Wahlberg's the same. Yeah. Wahlberg's the same. Yeah. It's interesting because Wahlberg's the same for different reasons. And I feel like Wahlberg is probably, well, let's move into Wahlberg. And I think maybe Wahlberg's is because I think he maybe felt exploited by it a little bit, which is interesting. I don't know that he felt ex. I mean, you don't know. You, you yeah, don't, I don't know, know these yeah. people. So, um, or what's in their head. I think that he is trying to separate himself from it because of his brand right now which he's very family family religious uh individual like very catholic i think you know i believe so so that's kind of his his thing right now so i could see why he would try and distance himself from it but let's be honest this movie made him oh 100 percent made it, him. it it was i mean if he made movies like fear <laughs> for for you know his early career we wouldn't be talking about it. We're talking about it because he was in Boogie Nights and that there's nothing that we're not talking about him because he was in Basketball Diaries. Yes, he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was because of Boogie Nights. So I guess he made his screen debut in the movie Renaissance Man from 1994. His first starring role was Fear 96 and then 97 was Boogie Nights. So I think Fear was the natural progression of him being like a teen heartthrob to go into make a movie that was probably like MTV's best kiss or whatever. And he takes his shirt off and he's still trading on the, his physique, the fact that he was, um, <laughs> and I like Calvin Fear. Klein. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Calvin Klein model famously. And I like fear. Fear's trash. It's hot garbage, but I like how <laughs> if you rewatch that movie, that movie's, it pushes it a little bit. It, it's kind of salacious and I like it. It's very trashy, but it's a fun movie. And I think he's pretty good in it. I actually think genuinely speaking, I think he's a good actor. I'm going to put, I'm going to push back a little bit on this because 
out of out of that entire cast, and I think that entire cast is pretty much perfect. The only one I, I take exception to with is Wahlberg in a weird way, because there are, there are aspects and there are parts of this movie that I'm like, he is just he's eating he's eating the scene, and it's just like it's incredible what he's doing and and how he's kind of portraying certain things. And then there's times that that I'm like, I can't tell if he is fully committed to it. It's so strange, like rewatching it after so long. There's this, like the, like the earlier part, I'm like, I'm so into it because there's this, there's this kind of innocent quality to, to that character. And I think he plays it to the nines, you know, just like an incredible, like early performance when he's like super innocent, trying to understand, being super friendly and accepting of everyone. And then when he when the switch happens and he starts to get a bit of like ego and recognition and like self love, I guess you would say there's a switch that happens that I don't understand. And this is the first time that I've kind of noticed it at that point where he is showing off like everything that he's bought and his apartment and like all this sort of stuff. He takes on this weird persona. He takes on this very like strange feminine persona that I'd never noticed before. I don't know if you notice that when, when you're watching it, but he he like he switches in a way, and it's like he plays it super super like feminine. Now I'm not I I don't want to say like his character is like questioning his sexuality or anything like that, but the way that he plays it is 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 very within that realm, and it it's just for that that part. It's just when he's kind of. He's showing everything that he's bought and he's showing like how much he loves his car and he's just being show, he's being a show off basically. And then that, that like character choice or that voice that he is putting out there never shows up again. And I don't understand why, why that was the case just for that scene. His performance is fucking weird because I think what's really interesting about him is it's hard to tell where he ends and Dirk Diggler begins because his performance yeah. as as Dirk Diggler, it's almost like it's hard to tell because his performance in the movies feels a lot like his performance as this character. So it's a there's a really weird blurring line between where is his performance is so ropey and like sketchy in the porno movies that he's showing, but in part of this movie, it's almost like Dirk Diggler is playing Dirk Diggler because his performance is just off in parts and he's like um very, he seems very unsure of himself in parts when he's acting you know what i think about Wahlberg? i think is when he's pushed he's better so when he's pushing so if he's playing angry or he's playing desperate or he's playing um anytime where he's pushing his emotions he's a better actor anytime when he's having to do softer quieter stuff it's when he if, if, i feel like he struggles case in point you got a golden globe award for the fighter okay so in the movie the fighter and then also um best supporting uh actor norm for the departed if you think about his performance in the departed which a lot of people think is his best movie he's basically pushing that character the whole way because he's playing an asshole so he's really driving his emotions and i feel like when he's unlocked like that and he's not trying to like control himself or like trying to if he's just tapped into his inner anger which that's will not go into his past but I'm guessing he has like anger issues from when he was younger based around the stuff that happened in his life, the controversies surrounding him. So anytime he's locked into that, I think he's, a, he's, he's far more engaging. And then when he, when he tries to rein it in and play straighter and play softer, it's like he doesn't know who he is. 
because he just doesn't come across like he he's like it's it's fascinating and it, you can really see it all in this movie whereas like he's dialed to 10 the whole way through the departed so you can't tell the only movie i've seen him in outside of this and the departed where i think he's good in i think he's good in the fighter but the fighter is just a good movie in general but the only other movie i think he's good in and it's super underrated is the remake of the gambler that he made i never saw that one no he's good in that movie and i feel like it's the only time i've ever really seen him it's almost like it feels very self-aware that performance and he feels very much like he knows who mark Wahlberg is and he's playing against type because he plays a college professor which is insane because you would never associate mark Wahlberg with playing like (laughs) an intellectual in in that regard but it's a very controlled performance and I think it's a really, really good performance. And I think it's his best overall performance. And I think that movie's super, like super, super underrated. I can't put my finger on him at all. And I think it's difficult because I watched this with my partner and she has never seen this movie before, like ever. Okay? Oh no. She's watching it through the lens in 2023 where everybody knows what Mark Wahlberg did when he was younger. Yeah. And I think it was must have been interesting to her for, for her to see it because I don't think she can see past that when she sees him, which is totally legitimate. But at the time when this movie came out, we didn't know any of that shit about him. So at the, yeah. at the time when it came out, it's just like, <laughs> I re- I recognized him from Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. You know what I mean? There you go. Yeah. Donnie Wahlberg's brother from New Kids on the Block. So I think that there's a lot of things about this movie that mightn't play so well now as they played in 1997. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, I think it stands up as, as a comedy. I think it stands on its own two feet as as a comedy. As far as like it being controversial or subject matter or anything like that, I think it would be considered tame in today's standards. 100%. 100%. An episode of Euphoria contains more like... There you go. Yeah. It could be a problem with this movie though. So somebody who was younger it was to see this movie now, say if you were like 16, 17 and you watch this movie now, it's so of its time in terms of what it's talking about because like you just can't understand... For me to see this movie, having grown up as a child consuming the pornography that they were making in this movie, yeah. it's fascinating to me to see that side of the industry. But nowadays, when everybody has their own OnlyFans account selling pictures of the feet, and like, <laughs> and, and sex work has become very, very much normalized. We, well, yeah, we live in a very kind of sex positive exactly, culture right yeah. now. In the 90s, mid 90s was not sex positive. And the time no, of the period no, when no. they were filming this was not sex positive either. So that whole side of the industry in that in that it must seem almost quaint now to somebody who was to watch this movie and be like oh that's cute yeah i was gonna say if you show a modern audience or a group of like 20 year olds today and you brought it up earlier if you showed them kids today i think that movie doesn't hit the way that it hit in the 90s not at all not at all not even close I mean, they might watch it and be like, oh, this was a nice episode of Sesame Street, you know, (laughs) sort of thing. (laughs) But I mean, when when that came out and when when we watched it, it was like, oh, you're going to have sex with someone and you're going to die of AIDS, basically. Yeah, that movie is just like pure nihilism in its in its it's nihilism in its purest form. And I think if if a modern uh, younger audience watched it today, they would be like, "Oh, that that was a cute movie. That was fun." Yeah, or they'd be like, "Oh, why did William H Macy kill himself? He's just in a polyamorous relationship." <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, maybe they maybe they really can't understand the kind of. I I mean, I I don't want to downplay 
empathy at all, but maybe it would be difficult to kind of empathize with a a, a man in the seventies in in that industry having to deal with his wife who is basically constantly cheating on him and emasculating him. And today it would, it would just be like, well, what's the yeah, what's the problem? Sort of. Yeah, sort of. yeah. She has a sex addiction. Clearly, she has a sex yeah, addiction. Exactly. But yeah, also, yeah, you'd be yeah, like, yeah. you could be, you could look through the lens of like, you're a pornographer. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, yeah what did like, you expect? What did yeah. you expect? Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Let's kind of head on into talking about the movie then and the way the plot unfolds, because I feel like talking, bringing up William H. Macy is interesting because I feel like there is a distinct, so this movie by all intents and purposes is a rise and fall and, you know, a rise and fall and rise again slightly, or, but it's essentially a classic I rise say, and fall yeah, story. I would, yeah, I would say rise and fall and kind of level off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom out kind of. Yeah. In all, like all great movies like that. And it's funny because to make the Goodfellas comparison, it's just like Goodfellas, rise and fall, casino, rise and fall, even Killers of the Flower Moon, rise and fall, very Scorsese story. And what's I think interesting about the movie and like all of these movies do, they hit like an apex or a turning point. So the, the, the apex in this movie happens in the, the last third where in terms of his rise, but there's a distinct part of this movie and it's very cleverly done. And it's basically at New Year's Eve at midnight when we're leaving the 70s and we hit the 80s, that's when William H. Macy's character kills himself. That is the shot that splits this movie in half. And basically as a viewer, when we're watching it, there's, it's very much like, oh, reality has come home. Oh, it, this is your wake up call. It's the slap in the face where it's like, everything you've been seeing up until that point seems relatively harmless, relatively fun, um, more or less by consenting adults. Very playful. Yeah. Very playful, very nostalgic until that moment. And then with that moment, all of a sudden there are stakes involved and there is repercussions and consequences. He's basically consequences, and that's when it rears its ugly head at midnight on New Year's Eve, heading into 1980. And I think that's a really jarring moment. And it was a jarring moment back then when the movie came out. It's the moment of the movie that I remember the most. I remember that moment more than I do anything else that happens in this movie. And it's still really effective today. I think so. There's a real kind of darkness that that it kind of ramps up in that particular scene because it's like, it's uh, the party is happening, the the drugs, it, like everything is kind of culminating. Then you get the uh, Scotty's character gets the kind of courage to not necessarily conf- confront his homosexuality, but be brave enough to to kind of put it on 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 Front Street and and be like, "I love you," sort of thing. And then that doesn't play out the way that he wants to. So you have that scene where he is just broken down in the car. And then like immediately after that, you get the little bill, the William H. Macy scene. And this is a man who is at the end of his rope. He doesn't, he plays it very kind of straight where it's not so much in the forefront. His kind of, his, his psychology isn't at the forefront uh, because he, his character is very, reserved and taken in like stepping back uh from maybe what his emotions are and but it's just like that entire time he's not wanting to talk to anyone or engage with any of the other characters the, the only thing that he's really doing there is looking for his wife oh like where's my wife sort of thing and then when he eventually finds her it's like yeah she, of course like she's 
having sex with some other guy like she always is. And he just can't, he basically, he can't sleep on the couch anymore. <laughs> sort of thing. You know, he, he can't do it he, anymore. He's basically hit his boiling point. It's a crescendo. You know, it's the, it's the last line, you know, it's the last bump of Coke. It's like the last, uh, pardon the pun, it's the last shebang sort of thing. So, so, and then you get the darkness that creeps in after that. But I mean, that's, that's not to say that the movie still isn't hilarious after that. Some of the funniest scenes come after this part. You get the studio session after that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is priceless. And that never fails to to get a laugh out of me. I think what's interesting about that scene is, is I feel like that's the first point of the movie where we realize that everything that these characters are all getting from this, everything that they're, lo- they're looking for in this weird family, surrogate family that they've formed in this industry, that is the first moment where it's like you, they're not getting what they need out of it there's no answers to be found in this. You're not going to get what you want or it's not what you think it's going to be. So Scotty very much is smitten with Dirk Diggler. He's he's infatuated with him. Day one, from day one. From day one. And what's interesting is, is at that moment, it's like, it's not going to work out for Scotty and him. It's not going to, it's not going to go the way Scotty thinks it's going to be. You know what I mean? It didn't go the way William H. Macy basically took as much as he could handle it and it broke. And then, Ultimately, as drugs start to get more and more rampant and everybody starts to use more and more and more, uh, Dirk Diggler's, when he has his, he's like tantrum on set because Jack's standing there and he's bringing this new kid in. And then, and it's like, this isn't going to, this isn't going to work for you anymore either. Everybody starts to kind of break down and everything starts to collapse around itself. And it's interesting that it's also tied into the same time that VHS becomes more popular. I was going to say even even Jack's character is at the breaking point because he is having to kind of face this this kind of crisis not not crisis of conscience but kind of crisis like like an ex- existential crisis where he's like I wanted to make a film I wanted to make the, the best film I wanted to keep him in the seat sort of thing and everybody's going to go to the theater and see my great movie sort of thing and now he's having to deal with this idea that he is having to switch his the way that he presents his movies now and and it and it probably feels cheapened in a way because it, it won't be shown in the theaters you know it's like his what he's built his career up to is now in its downward trajectory you know to go back to what i said at the beginning of the episode and i feel like this is i feel like he might also be talking about the film industry too not just the adult industry because when you had the proliferation of VHS in homes, that's the, the the dawn of the VHS rental period, which is where you head into the 80s. And then like tonally and like quality wise, I think like it's it's arguable that like that the 70s up to the 70s, specifically the 70s in American cinema is pretty much heralded as the greatest period in American cinema is the 1970s, where it was everything was more elevated. Uh, people were making more interesting movies. And I feel like not only with the adult industry too, that when everything started to go to a more disposable, cheaper home format, that's probably also when you started to get directed video movies that came out. And then in the 80s, cinema kind of dipped too, because arguably the 80s is like a huge fall off in terms of quality and art and craft from the 70s into the 80s, because it really is. It's huge. 
I was going to say in the 70s, you can see you can see the dirt and grime on the screen. In the 80s, everything is shiny and polished. Yeah. And there's like a, a soullessness to it almost. Yeah. You yeah. go from movies like, I don't know, like Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, or like, you know what I mean? Any of those movies, 70s movies. The Godfather. Even like The Godfather. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And then and then when you head into the 80s, everything has that like, you think about movies that are very popular in the 80s. And there's a lot more salacious content too, where you start getting into movies like Platoon, with a lot more violence. Everything becomes a lot more gritty, a lot more lethal weapon. Yeah. yeah, a lot more instantaneous and like cheap thrills. So I think that's an interesting comparison to make between the the adult industry that's happening at the time and also mainstream Hollywood. Up until that breaking point, it's a very classic rise part of the movie where he's basically plucked from obscurity as a dishwasher in a nightclub and everybody's disco dancing everybody's having a great time there's a lot of things i think that it's really interesting when you watch now in terms of <laughs> like the whole process of him getting he's kind of groomed in a way what what's his real name in the movie uh mark Wahlberg's character's name eddie, eddie eddie adams eddie adams he's kind of groomed by burt reynolds because he's presented with like hey we have this house everybody hangs out we have fun you know what I mean? He has a he has a terrible relationship with his father and his mother. His mother's I don't know why his mother's so angry all the time, but his mother's portrayed terribly <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. There's no yeah, real explanation yeah. given for it other than she yeah. just seems like a total nightmare. So like he's very much given this like, hey, you can come out and hang out here. You know, we'll look after you. We've got like it's party, it's fun times around here all of the time. You've got what we need. You're ex- you're you're accepted, you're accepted here. Yeah, exactly, you're yeah. accepted, and like we think you've got talent. So basically, he is very much finding. I think that with the the father-son dynamic in Hard 8 that we were talking about, I feel like there is a father-son dynamic between Jack Horner and Dirk Diggler, or Eddie Adams. Yeah. I think it's less less than in Hard 8, though, and I think there's more of a mother-son dynamic, but it's only a one-way street. So I think she sees him as a son, but he doesn't see her as his mother. No, no, And I don't think he sees Jack as his father either. I think he just sees this as a safe space. Or he feels accepted, but I don't think he's. I don't think he's. I don't think he's looking at them as parental figures at all, or surrogates. I don't think he sees her as as a parental figure. I do think that he sees him as a father figure at the end. Yes, when he like basically he comes with hat in hand. He's he's at the the very bottom. You know, he's hit bottom basically, and. Because he do, obviously he doesn't go home. He goes to the home that he knows that he was loved in. So that's so true. Because when I was watching it with my partner, she at the very end when he's rolling down in his car. Well, we'll get to that too because this he comes back to that in Licorice Pizza. The car running on empty down a hill. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I want to talk about like his use of building tension, which I think he's a fucking master at. Paul Thomas Anderson, but. At the end, it's funny because as his car rolls up and he gets out of his car, she's like, oh, he's went back home to his mother. He's finally went back home to his mother. And it's funny because he doesn't. He goes back <laughs> and, he, and and I think that's that's exactly where he wanted to land it. You know what I mean? To really tie the story background in a loop is for him to go back there. So that's a good point. Yeah. You would have to imagine that that character never sees his mother again. I, I imagine I, not. I cannot imagine. Or his father for that matter. Or his father. No, no, either one. Either one, really. The mother-son relationship, as far as the Julian Moore character, is very much one-sided. It's a, it's, it's one, it's a one-way street. Like with most relationships in this movie, it's a very kind of one-way street. And I think maybe the only mutual relationship 
besides the friendship between Reed and Dirk, your regular like male friendship, I, I think the only kind of two-way relationship is the father and son relationship between Jack and Dirk. Only when it reaches its conclusion, because exactly, yeah. At, at yeah. first, he's just he's just taking from him. He's taking everything he has to give him. It, it's only at the end where he's like, yeah. And I think there's that very very climactic scene, which is the drug deal gone awry with Alfred Molina's character, which is based on a real event. Oh, is it? Oh yeah, yeah. Is it based on the John Holmes? Because didn't he do that? It's loosely based on the John Holmes thing. There was a drug dealer in LA and his name was uh, Eddie Nash. And he got ripped off by a group of people who John Holmes was involved with, allegedly. And then they turn around and they do the the Wonderland murders. That's right. Val Kilmer played John Holmes in that uh, Wonderland. But that character is loosely based on that Eddie Nash character. That's interesting. Okay, that makes perfect sense. In PT, this is really master. I think it's the most masterful part of the whole movie. And I think it's a part of the movie where I'm watching, I'm really looking for like, where is that mastery? Whereas, whereas PTA is like ultimate control. And I feel like it's in that scene because there's a moment where he's sitting down on the couch and it, it kind of just focuses in on his face for a while. There's no dialogue and the sound's very muted. And it, and it lasts for like a minute and it's just his face and everything, every realization that he has, you can see flash across his face in that moment because he's literally, it's like he's playing back his entire life up until that point. And then he has the realization where he's like, this has gone too far. Yeah. Well, there is that realization, but did you like a split second before that, did you realize like he was smiling, like he was happy to be there? There, there was like, there was... If you if you watch that, there's like there's the tension and he's going through all these emotions. But for a second, he it's almost like he, he, that character has a moment of clarity. And in that clarity, he has he has this not necessarily happiness, but he has this joy. I don't know. There's this joy that happens with him where he's smiling and he's kind of he's drenched in sweat. He's smiling. He's almost laughing and he's he's enjoying himself. And then. It, but it only lasts for a second because I think he enjoys the chaos that's happening around him because once again, it it goes back to what I was talking about originally is he would give anything. I, th I think that character would give anything to switch places with that Nash character because I think he wants everything that's in that guy's life at that moment. Because you'll see him. He's just looking around. He's looking at all the possessions. He's looking at him. And maybe the power that he has and the money and the drugs and everything like that. And he's enjoying what he's seeing. And I put money on the fact that he would give anything to kind of trade places with him and kind of possess that role. But it only lasts for a second. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's the only time in his life where as fucked up as it is and as horrible a situation as it is, he is almost living one of his characters from one of his porno movies. He's almost living that role, you know, like the the crime fighting or being involved in a drug deal. And 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 it's he's very much living like the apex of of that kind of like imagined existence of a life that he has. Um until it all until he hits rock bottom essentially at the same at the same moment he instantly hits rock bottom. In a way and I think that's where he's just like the his come to Jesus moment, if you will, where he's like he gets up and he's like, we've got to leave. You know, this has gone too far. I, yeah. I need to get out of this. <laughs> And I think that's masterful. I think just like, that's fucking good acting because I can see everything on his face. Just the exhaustion, 
the shock, the the uh, sadness, the it's like so many emotions flashing over his face. And you just read in this whole guy's story from his face in that moment and the weight of everything that's that's came before it, because essentially a lot of it is presented in a weightless way to an extent, because it's still this almost idyllic, sun-drenched Californian odyssey. You know, it's still... One of the interesting things is, is in the beginning when Jack is like, you know, I make these pictures, I make these movies and I want you to be a star in it. In my mind, I, I'm thinking these characters think that they're going to become movie stars or the movies that they're making are like your regular Hollywood movies. That's how they that's how they see them. You know, they they don't they don't see them as like this thing that is that flies under the radar and is kind of maybe below whatever modern cinema was of the day. I They see it as being on the same level, as being contemporaries with the movies that are being shown of that time. There's no delineation, basically, from what they're doing to, to what is being happening in the, uh, the Hollywood mainstream at that moment. So I, I found the delusion of these characters to be fascinating, too, because they think they're just they're regular movie stars. They have a lot of the trappings of movie stars. They have the money, the fast cars, the abundant sex, which I'm sure, you know, is a trapping of fame and celebrity. Yeah. And in his mind, yeah, he's in his mind, they're making their you know, they're making their French connection <laughs> or their, <Yeah. laughs> or their James Bond movie. They're making their James Bond movie. Yeah. 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 Because they reference it. Yeah. I want to make it this James Bond type, you know, the hubris of them is, is wild. Yeah, but it's yeah. also that kind of um, unchecked ego that goes into that. You could really sub out, you could sub out the sex industry for anything else as a rise and fall of somebody has a talent at something because he is it's it, it, what he ultimately has is a talent he has a talent for sex he's endowed legendarily <laughs> but really it's just how he uses and misuses his talent and how it goes to his head but you could sub that out for something else that somebody might be good in too and make a different movie about it you know what i mean like somebody i don't know i'm trying to use an example but somebody who was like well i i was at zuck mark zuckerberg He's yeah good at computers yeah totally <laughs> it's it's just it, it just so happens to be that this is the industry that he's in and i think that's what's really good about the movie because other than the the interesting tidbits that we get which is the you know like we're learning about the switch to vhs we're learning about how they could just keep recording and then they edit and post and we're learning about all of that side of the industry where they could get tapes out faster they could do all of this stuff outside of that it's not really about sex the movie's not really about sex and i think that's why it's so effective and i think that's why it didn't need to be nc17 in the use of nudity in this movie i think it's appropriate for what we need to see the sex scenes aren't played out i think they're appropriate let me ask you this because i think this is weird too though there's no romantic element to the story at all there's no romance so there's no it's interesting that he doesn't have, we, we know he has a girlfriend at the very beginning of the movie. And I don't know if it's more, more of a girlfriend or more just like they're like high school friends who are like a hook it up or whatever. But at no point in the movie does he get involved with anybody on a romantic level. No, I, I would say that as far as his character, no, there's no, there's no romance. There's no uh, emotional connection with really anyone except himself uh, throughout the entire thing. But I would say the closest thing to a romance or uh, two people loving each other is the um, the Don Cheadle precisely uh, storyline. I, I think that I think those are two characters who are general genuinely in love. As much as I like Don Cheadle in this movie, his character I feel is the most you could 
cut that out altogether. You could cut his storyline out because he has an arc and we know that he's trying to get money to go into the hi-fi business. He's not taken seriously because he's in works in pornography. It also probably tied into race too. And they're definitely covering a lot of that. And then he has this relationship with another adult actress. It's funny because I feel like that particular storyline feels the most like peripheral to what's going on in the center of everything. I think the William H. Macy storyline is really a flashpoint moment, which I think it serves the whole tone of the movie. That what happens and unfolds with Roller Girl, it just feels like it's tied into Jack and also by proxy into Digla and his downfall also is like paralleled with the, the Roller Girl story, which they don't really delve in. The Julianne uh, Moore story doesn't really get delved in too much, but it's enough for us to know that she is in this custody battle with her ex-husband. And then she gets looked down upon also because she's works in the adult industry, but it's also because she's a fucking raging cokehead who couldn't, you can't take a yeah. kid, you can't take a kid to a sex house. It's like, no, the Playboy no. Mansion. They're not going to look, nobody's going to look good on that. You know what I mean? She's fucked basically. But the Don Cheadle thing, especially when we see him go to get, he gets denied for the loan. Uh, we introduced to him working at the, the hi-fi store and his guy, his boss is basically like, you need to ditch the look. You know how he's dressing like a cowboy? Like a cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of his story feels very tacked on to me because you could remove all of it and it wouldn't affect how the movie plays out altogether because you never see Dirk Diggler really interact with him. You never really see anybody interact with him. I mean, you, you see him high-fiving him or him, him being in the peripheral, but he, he feels less part of the family than everybody else does. I can, I can totally see that. The only thing that I would say in defense of it is he is his character or his storyline is more in line with what a regular person, a regular person who has like a regular day job and uh, regular goals and wanting to better themselves and, and everything that just, just a, like a regular, like civilian, like who, who has all these things uh, going on with them. I don't want to say it's a human story, but it's like the everyman. It's the everyman story because he has that job. He has a relationship. He has a business that he wants to grow. He made, he made choices in his life early on that uh, affected his, like the goals that he wanted in the future, but he never saw them as choices that he made that were, that should have deterred his future goals. If you know what I mean, you know, he, he didn't see what he was doing as being wrong. He just saw it as if you were part of a, a weekend Shakespeare troupe or something like that. He was like, I'm, I'm just an actor. You know, I'm just an actor who, who was in these movies. And that was a part of something that I did in, in my past. And now I'm trying to do this new thing. I think with that, what I'm trying to get to is I think with that storyline, it grounds us kind of in a, in a reality where the other storylines are so outlandish in a way that we can't empathize with the, I can't empathize with the Jack Corner, a Dirk Diggler, Roller Girl, Reed Rothschild, any of those other characters. I can't empathize, not maybe not empathize. I can't put myself in those situations and understand it. But with his character and his storyline, I could understand being maybe down and out working a kind of nine to five dead end job wanting better for myself, but maybe because I didn't have the right education or I didn't like check certain boxes for employees or banks, I'm not going to get this because I had to make decisions about things 
that I didn't see were were bad at the time. They just helped me kind of survive. And and I suppose too, then I'm kind of coming back around on it, thanks to what you said. <laughs> if you think about it too, if we're going to talk about an industry, not everybody in that industry was a raging cokehead making terrible decisions. Some people were just doing it as a job. Yeah. And I feel like it's so in a way, yeah, you're right. He is grounding us because to cover to cover the industry and to not even talk about that element of the industry would be kind of disingenuous because it wasn't all this crazy salacious shit there was genuine people just seeing it as a job because if you notice too don chidal you would never see him drinking we never see him do drugs no no he's very much just like it's a job yeah exactly yeah he he has a, a certain style that he's he the, the thing is is like he enjoys he enjoys like his style and his character and like the, the type of person that he is. The only reason that he's kind of down on himself is because everybody else makes fun of him as being kind of this outsider when that everybody else is accepting of all this other crazy chaotic like crap that everybody else is into where he is just like pretty much a straight, at least what we're shown, kind of a straight lace. He'll, he'll have like a drink now and then. But he's more into, I think he's more into his future goals more than anything. And he's not into like the the sex and the drugs and the partying and stuff like that, uh, like everybody else is. Talk about 180 and I've hard 180 on this character. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I do like that. I do like how he's the only person that gets any good luck, really. He's the only person that has anything lucky happen to him, which is in that that weird yeah. scene where he goes yeah. to buy donuts and then he ends up taking the money, which is the startup money that he got denied for his loan, so he can set up his own business. So it's kind of he has a nice payoff his character, I think. If PTA killed that character off, it would just it would have been kind of almost like a gut punch that wasn't necessary. Because you think that's what's going to happen. Because it seems exactly. like he's going to die in that. Yeah. Like, and I've seen that movie. I've seen this movie like eight or nine times, and every time I watch it, I still get nervous that scene because yeah. you just don't know how it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean because he goes into that place in like a pure white suit and when when people start getting shot you're like, "Oh no." <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice touch. And I think it yeah, you're right. It would almost seem too cruel. It would almost seem too, seem too cruel for somebody who is so valiantly trying to better himself and not just for vanity or for um fame or for any of the wrong reasons. Yeah, because it's not about like the next with with Dirk. It's all about the next score. When are we going to get high? When are we going to find more drugs? You know, like all these other characters. It's like with Julianne Moore's character, it's, you know, yeah, I want to be with my kids, but I also want to kind of stay in my room and just get high the whole time. You know, it's like uh, none none of these other characters have this like noble aspiration or noble kind of pursuit where he is the character who does have that. And it's just, it has found himself in kind of a crazy situation. I think the movie ends in a very satisfying way. I think it wraps itself up in a very satisfying way with him going back and, and, you know, getting the acceptance back. And it's like, you know, it's the one place where you can fuck up and you'll still be welcomed. Really should be your home. The one place you can, your family is the one group of people who can be like, you can fuck up as much as you like and we're still going to welcome you back. And it just so happens that it's <laughs> yeah. his alternate family. But to go back to the point that we were making, though, and we brought it up earlier on with Jack and like, do I think he has a genuine affection and care for these people? Yes, I do. I do. I think it's all kinds of fucked up, especially his relationship with Roller Girls really fucked up because he's essentially prostituting her, essentially prostituting her out for free. There's two scenes that I think are really fucked up with Roller Girl. There's the, the opening scene where he essentially 
he watches her and Mark Wahlberg have sex. And then he is in very much father-daughter relationship with Roller Girl. So when he watches them both have sex, that's kind of fucked up in a way. And I understand that's how the porn industry probably worked in like casting couches or whatever. But then there's a scene where like they could tell their bottomy now in terms of his career uh, creatively too, where they go out and they do that very Gonzo style bang bus style thing where they go out in in the limousine (laughs) and then they bring that guy in and it just so happens it's a guy who went to school with it, which is a horrible situation. And you could tell like that whole scene and that's also plays alongside one-to-one with the scene where Mark Wahlberg essentially starts to like rent himself out and basically turns to prostitution to try and get money to buy drugs. And he gets the uh, gay bashing that happens where the the guys, they pull him out of the car. So those two things are happening concurrently and the soundtrack is very, very good at this point. It's very ominous. And as things escalate with Roller Girl, the guy's treating her like shit in the car. And and Jack's saying, hey, you got to make her look sexy. You got to make her romantic. But what's fucked about that is, is I don't think he's really saying that to her. Like, you got to treat her well. He's saying it, you got to make it look good for the camera. And I think that's, exactly, that's yeah, what's 100%. kind of fucked. And at no point is he really stepping in to protect her. And what happens was it's only when the guy insults his films him. that he attacks him and he's like your movies aren't what they used to be and then he goes outside the car and he attacks him and then roller girl uh, essentially pretty much murders him <laughs> with a roller skate i was gonna say i don't i don't know if that guy is gonna be the same after no you'd have significant brain damage <laughs> after that you'd have to because those are like steel old school 70s roller skates that's a plastic or carbon fiber they would have fucked them up but it's funny because that's what's fucked up about that is that he only he only attacks that guy when he uh, uh, abuses him not when he's abusing her and then, but what's funny is, is at the end of the movie where he takes Mark Wahlberg back, he goes and he's like, are you ready for your scene with Julianne Moore? And he's giving her a kiss and he goes, I see like the most beautiful woman. I'll not say what he says because it's a family show. It's not, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and then he's talking to Roller Girl and Roller Girl's obviously we say I go back to school. And then he's like, hey, can you tidy up your bedroom? Very much like a father would do with his teenage daughter. And she's got her headphones on. He's like, can you move some of your mess? That's what's really fucked about that because it is this really dysfunctional fam, like an incredibly dysfunctional fam. So do I think he has an affection for this? I think he does, or he has a love of the status quo and he has a love of that life. So he has a love of like, everything's in its right place again. He has a, he has a star boy back, Roller Girl's there. He has uh, Julianne Moore there. He's back making movies. Everybody's all under one roof and he's very much the king of his castle in control of his domain. And he only starts to crack when he realizes that he's not going to get the funding anymore the industry doesn't need him anymore. The industry's changed. He's no longer relevant. Yeah, perhaps he does. But, well. but I, would, I, would, I would say that he is rolling in the dough because he is, he's basically a distributor at that point. He's probably making a ton of money. Because he's walking through a warehouse just full of videotapes. So it's not like he's down and out, fi- financially like down and out, like doesn't know where... Th- where if he's going to be able to make a house payment or something like that, it's like he, I think he's, he's in the industry. He's like 100% in, like all in, in the industry, but his little kind of slice of it, his little kind of like kingdom part of it, he is able to orchestrate the way that he wants it orchestrated as far as like his, his home and, and everything like that. But when it comes to the business side of it, I think he's probably still just as ruthless and predatory as he was in the beginning. I think that's fair. I think I, I've definitely 180 on that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just tricky. I think everything, everything is so incestuous by the end and that it's, it's difficult to understand where one, one line starts and the other like alliance, you know, like in terms of 
their relationships are so blurred. I mean, like you said, even at the beginning of the episode, like Mark Wahlberg's relationship with Julianne Moore is a, a, a mother-son relationship, but they also have sex. It's very Freudian. Oh, yeah. I don't know what happens to those characters once Jack dies is the thing. Yeah, I've got a feeling it. It feels like almost the end of that movie almost feels like you could argue that it's a dream sequence. <laughs> in a way, you could. That's not to say he dies in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie and you've like stuck around this entire, he doesn't die in the movie. But I'm just thinking like abstractly, if that what happens to the rest of those characters if the Jack character passes away? I I cannot imagine roller girl surviving out there no totally not i mean it's all tied in i suppose with the the visual imagery of the the gas tank be the gas tank being on empty at the very end of the movie it, it's like you know what i mean everything everybody's on empty so yeah you could theoretically look it through the lens of like everything that culminates in that house that ending is just like this hazy dream where it's like everybody's back in place everybody's back home we see the picture of William S. Macy on the wall, the portrait, and he's walking Every, around. Everything is status quo and, and back to normal, yeah. It very much could just be a dream sequence. It could just be very much like, that's not how this movie ended at all. Really, that's not how this story ends. Which I kind of like looking at it like that, in a way. I mean, as much as you can. <laughs> kind of uh, want a happy ending for these characters, I guess. All in all, Eric, second movie in on the PTA series that we're doing. Second movie chronologically in his filmography. Upon rewatching, obviously, I think it's going to be interesting when we get to the end of this run and we we start to like talk about these movies in in we're not necessarily rank them. If we've had any revelations, if a movie's moved up higher in our regard or lower down in our regard, just off watching this in Hard Eight, where are you now in your opinion of this movie as a work of art by PTA? Like, how are you ranking it? Has it has it softened in your opinion? Has it got stronger or? I think it has stood the test of time and you can approach it through a a comedy lens or you can approach it through as a like dramatic cautionary tale and it can exist within those realms. It hasn't dipped at all. Like I didn't watch it and was let down by it because of the passing of time. So I think it kind of, it holds kind of steady and just above a hard eight because one, it was, it was PTA kind of learning, learning from that, that first experience and elevating. Yeah, I, I would say it is a movie that is elevated in the career of a PTA up until this point. And each time after this, you get this greater kind of elevation that happens. I would say for me, where I'm at on it is I still think it's a good movie. I still think it's in line with his work. I One thing I think is really interesting is I feel like this is an increase in confidence in his work. And I feel like at this point, this is a big quantum leap from Hard Eight in a lot of respects, like the managing of an ensemble cast, the scope and scale of it. It's very a confident, self-assured step. And it feels, it shows like ambition, like huge ambition with him. And again, a lot of like great mastery of certain things, you know, his use of building tension in that drug, the drug deal gone awry, the, his like how constant ramping of tension is something that comes back in his later movies, like up until where it hits like fever pitch and something like Phantom Fred. And even in that little sequence in Licorice Pizza with the, the, the truck running out of gas, like how he's masterful at cranking that wheel and I think this is evident in this movie and we're starting to see a genesis of a lot of 
genesis of a lot of things. I think for me, I need to rewatch Magnolia because I feel like, and I might be right in this, or at least this is my take on PTA, is we start at Hard Eight, which is very um, somber and small scale. Then we jump dramatically to Boogie Nights. Then we jump to like a huge ensemble film with Magnolia that's multiple intertwining stories, different timelines, um, abstractness, uh, surrealism, all of that. And I feel like it goes, it goes fully maximalist by his third movie. And I feel like everything after Magnolia is him restraining, 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 restraining. So it, it like apexes. And then he gets to the point where we get right down to like, say, Phantom Thread, which is like super controlled, super refined. That's what I was going to say. I was like, these are these are movies like he gets to a certain point and then he starts refining stuff. He starts refining his vision. And then, see, so yeah, by the time, because if you look at this, if you look at Boogie Nights and then you look at Phantom Thread, I'm taking out Licorice Pizza. If you look at Phantom Thread, the the refinement that happens from this movie to that movie is incredible. It's like, to me, it's almost a different director entirely. I would, like you said, to take out Licorice Pizza because I think it's his weakest movie by a long shot. Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I think it's his weakest movie. I, I, I think it's a good movie. Licorice Pizza to me feels like a movie that he made during the pandemic because he just wanted to have fun. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like it's progressing him. Every other movie feels like he's on this path but Licorice Pizza feels like it's a sidestep where he's just like, I'm going to have fun. I would say Licorice Pizza is, is maybe a back to form movie, but I can honestly say I can't watch uh, Inherent Vice again. I, I can't watch it again. I like Inherent Vice. It's, it's a misfire. It's a huge misfire. I think it's a misstep. Yeah, I think it's a misstep that I was, I, I was bored the entire time watching it. Okay, well, Eric, thank you. Be a good oh. episode as, as always. Yeah, yeah. Well, video cut out there in the middle, but uh, we deal with it. We deal with adversity here. Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Okay, perfect. So we will return with Magnolia. Magnolia is up next. I'm very interested to sit down and watch it because it has been quite a while since I've seen it. This is the one I've seen the the least, and it's the one I haven't seen in the longest period of time. I haven't seen Magnolia since it's initial release post theater on rental so that makes i haven't seen it since like maybe it's the year 2000 wow yeah i haven't seen this movie in over 20 years <laughs> wow it's gonna be a new movie for you that's awesome very excited to see that again so uh thanks dear listener i hope you stick around for our season and you come back that was a good time to catch up on magnolia before we go into the next episode so you can listen along with us and uh any thoughts and feedback that you've had so far on the episodes that we've been doing on this new direction if you have any thoughts or feedback on pta or the films that we've covered anything you'd like to see us cover with a director a specific director you think that would be a good good pick for us that we haven't mentioned or haven't even like mentioned before on the podcast we're always interested in feedback so please get in touch with us and once again thanks everybody for listening along with us and being part of this little community that we have thanks guys (laughs) 